0: Well, we are going to be in Proverbs chapter 30, so make your way there this evening as we pick up where we left off last week. Hope you have a Bible, you're making your way there. If not, there's Bibles in front of you, you can grab one in a chair, electronic device, great, use one of those so you can be there with us. Same in the overflow, same online. We invite you into the book of Proverbs chapter 30 tonight, longing that God would speak to us his word longing that as we approach this this evening that God would both give you understanding but in the midst of it he would speak something very specific to you I I know I'm wanting that needing that and so I want to just begin us in prayer as we usually do and just say just invite you to say the same that you would ask God to help you to understand heed and hear those things that he has in store for you so let's ask him for that right now Father thank you thank you for your word Thank you that it's good and it's true. And, Lord, we just need it. We need your word to, to speak into our lives, to shape us, to change us the way we even walk through and perceive the realities that we're in. Would you bring us to godliness? Would your word work that which is genuine and real in us this evening? And, God, in your faithfulness, would you do that personally? Taking truth and just helping us to get it, understand it, and apply it. God, work this in us right now. I thank you for this. I thank you for your faithfulness and trust you in it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever, you know, met somebody or seen something and as soon as you just talked to them, you knew it's like, I'd like to get to know you better. I would like to you know, just make, you know, sit down with a cup of coffee and, and hear your story. There's something about sometimes when you meet somebody that their very character resonates. That you're just like, wow, I mean, that's just, boy, that's just, you, you, just to be around that draws me. Well, where we are in the book of Proverbs, we meet, for me, one of those men. Uh, we met him last week. We met Agur. He writes this chapter in the book of Proverbs. We don't know anything about him, know anything about him other than he's the writer of this, but I'm incredibly impacted by what he said. If you were with us last week, we got to meet this man and and, and he speaks these words. We saw him as an incredibly humble man. It says it in verse 2: Surely I am more stupid than any man, and just humbles himself to that. But he has these incredible insights. He sees images, he sees pictures of, of God, the reality of God and the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God and even glimpses of Christ uh, in verse four where he says, you know, at the end of it, you know, what is his son's name? I mean, just incredible insights. And in all of that, he had an absolute confidence in what you and I are studying tonight, the Bible, and he ended the section that we were in last week with a really good prayer. Would you just notice that with me as we dive into what's going to be before us this evening? He says it this way in verse 7. Two things. I request of you, do not deprive me before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's a great number of prayers, but the last one, I just draw your attention to God, give me exactly what you have for me. Give me what you've allotted for me. You know me. Give me too much, I'll mess up. Give me too little, I'll mess up. You know exactly the bandwidth which, which I'm made for, and he simply asks for that. It's a really good request, and we spoke about that in more detail last week, but it is in that space that we move into the rest of the chapter. Well, and the rest of the chapter is a really poetic and interesting section in the midst of it. We are in Proverbs, and it is marked by Hebrew poetry, kind of these rhyming of thoughts and word pictures uh, that are laid out before us. And just to be clear, there's some really kind of amazing ones in this section, but it's actually a little bit um, uncertain into exactly everything that's laid before us. Most Bible students kind of look at it, uh, kind of wrestle through it, just wondering, okay, are these just statements of fact? Are these just kind of beautiful pictures in the midst of it? I've heard some really cool sermon series done on each um, one of these sections in the midst of it, but even then it's like, okay, is that exactly what it's saying? And and so it's left in some ways uh, wondering, okay, so what exactly is God going to tell us? Well, I'm definitely not standing here saying, well, I know, like I I know what other people don't know, but I would uh, put to you that I would wonder if everything that's laid before us isn't laid out and just a beautiful, kind of just a whole picture that's laid before us. That right now we just met a girl and he's talking to us about this place that he is coming to wanting nothing more than what God has for him, humbling himself before God in some beautiful ways. And then he makes a number of statements. Notice with me what it says there in verse 11. He says, there is a generation that curses its father. Pause there. So he begins to look at a generation of people that is mocking, that is cursing. It goes on to say in verse 12, that's you know, pure in its own eyes, that, that is just arrogant and prideful in many ways. And he just begins to speak about a very arrogant, prideful generation. Well, then we get these number of pictures that run its way through the chapter, but it ends. It ends the chapter. Fast forward and read there in verse 32, if you have been foolish and exalting yourself, or if you've devised evil, put a hand to your mouth. And he kind of invites us into this place. And so it would seem to me that maybe we have it sandwiched, uh, that maybe on the beginning and ending, he's going to give us this really powerful poetic picture of the danger of arrogance and pride, about those who would look at life in a way that he is not looking at it. Again, he just gave us his own story, his deep humility, I'm more stupid than anybody I know, his convictions, his hold to the scriptures, his trust in God, but then he's going to look at those who don't do it that way, and so he bookends it with these ideas of giving us this understanding of the danger of this prideful arrogance. Well, Again, I just toss that out to you, not as an absolutely certain that that's what's before us, again, because Bible students are not so clear about it, and who, again, I'm not you know, wise enough to say that it's everything there, but I think it's an interesting conjecture for us even to think through. So with that in mind, let's think about it. If you've read this chapter before, and many of you have, you might know we move into this section that's very poetic, and it uses these rhythms of, of four things that'll say over and over, you know, for three things, no yet for four, and each one finds itself with these uh, just sections of four nuggets uh, that kind of base itself around a truth, and probably deeply profound for kind of being one of those numbers in scripture that kind of gives a full orbed uh, picture around it, much like we think about the four gospels, and kind of just this full orbed, okay, this fully speaks into that probably some realities here. And so we're going to try our way just to read through it, make quick notes on it. But in some ways, I want you to see the whole. So we're going to cover the whole rest that whole section this evening. Uh, And so again, for some of it, we'll have to just make simple comments on it, but hopefully God will make it land. Well, we begin in the section that at the very top of it, he wants to give us this perspective of a generation, and that becomes the repetitious word of this prideful generation. Let's read it and then we'll quickly note it. Verse 11 There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation. Oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, whose fangs are like knives, uh, who devour the poor off the earth and the needy from among men. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. Yeah, we look at this whole thing, and he gives us this idea of a generation. And these four pictures that he gives into it gives us these pictures of what that would look like. He begins with this idea of those who reject authority. He says, you know, there's a generation of people that they mock their, their parents. They curse their father. They don't bless their mother. And don't miss this for a moment. That's bigger than just family. Authority begins in the home. It really does begin there. God makes that as the foundational place. And, and where it's you know, denied there, it flows into the rest of culture. It flows into everything else. He says, so here's a group of people who say, I don't respect that. I reject all authority. I reject, you know, parental authority, bosses, leaders, everything. And he says there's this arrogant, prideful generation that rejects everything before it, and instead they're very self-satisfied. It gives us this idea. He says, you know, they look there, verse 12, and they're pure in their own eyes. They think, I'm, I'm great. Although at the same moment, they're not. He says they're not washed from their filthiness. They're, you know, sinful you know, and, and marked by sin, and yet they feel absolutely good about it, not because they are good, but because they've just rejected authority. He says that takes them into this place that they're just very, very arrogant. They have these lofty eyes, which gives this idea of looking down on everybody else, uh, of arrogantly looking at anybody and everybody else, which draws them to be those who, instead of being a blessing to other people, they are a curse. They are those who, he says gives us this picture, their teeth are like swords and their fangs are like knives. You know, they devour the poor from the earth and needy from among men. It's as if instead of being a blessing, which is really the intention of what God would have for our life, where he would speak to like Abraham, hey, I'm calling you out and you're going to be a blessing. You're going to be a blessing to everybody around you, that the life rightly lived draws us into that into a space of that. In fact, had we time, you could look at the four of these and say, okay, these are the exact opposite of what God has for us. You know, that we're trying to go the other direction. We're trying to go into a place of, of honoring authority, of being cleansed, of being those who, who are humble and being those who are a blessing. But he gives us this picture of arrogance, of what pride looks like. And he kind of gives it this closing thing that is almost outside of the four pictures, where he just says the leech just has two daughters. Give, give. Like, just give to me. Just give to me. Just, you know, it's just about me. It's just about what I am. It's just about this place of of living uh, for my own self. And this picture of somebody who is in their pride and in their arrogance, for lack of a better way of saying it, they're a cancer on society. You know, instead of a blessing, they, they just take and draw and, you know, they become those that hurt and hinder everything that's there. And so he's giving us this picture of what this looks like. He's telling us, hey, this is a bad area. This is a place that is the opposite of what God would have for our lives. This is a place that is arrogant and prideful. Oh, there are so many. There is a generation that's like that. And so as he brings that before us, he's calling us, obviously, to recognize it, to see its evilness, and to be moved away from it. So as he lays that first section out, this prideful generation, he begins to give us again these sections that build upon it. You know, we get to this next one that, you know, in some ways just helps us to see those things that are never satisfied. So pick it up in the middle of verse 15. There are three things. That are never satisfied, four that never say enough, the grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. So pause and just think about it for a moment. I mean, he's given us this picture. He says, "Okay, there's these things," and and now we move into this rhythm. Uh, that much of the rest of the internal chapter says there's going to be three things, no yet four. And it's a very poetic way of, again, kind of saying, hey, there's, these are examples, and yet in some ways these can encompass everything. And so he wants us to look on these things that he says they could never be satisfied. They, they never have enough. Uh, they never get to the place that, that it would be there. And so he tells us the grave is that way. You know, there's never a space like, okay, you know what, enough people dying. You know, it's, 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 it's never ending. You know, a barren womb is never satisfied. Uh, that there's never a place like, I'm I'm really fine. No, there is always emptiness there. Earth is never satisfied with water. A fire is never, you know, like, okay, I think that's enough. I think I've just, you know, kind of burned a thousand acres. I thought I'd just stop now. It will always consume as much as it possibly can. It is never satisfied. And so probably in very picturesque ways and maybe with deeper spiritual meanings in it, but that none are really certain of what's there, he just wants us to feel the weight of something that, can never be happy, can never be content, uh, can never be satisfied, can never walk in that place of of joy and fullness. And so to that, he again comes to kind of a a fifth thing that kind of gives us this place that's going to tie it back to the others. So pick it up in verse 17. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles We'll eat it. So in some ways, he's tying us back. So we just began a moment ago. There's this generation, and the very first thing he told us was, man, they reject authority. They reject their parents. They won't They won't honor their father. They won't respect their mom. And so now he gives us this picture of how that flows into an unsatisfied heart, this place where he says, you know, as these who reject authority, authority they become, well, for lack of a better way of saying it, bird food. Uh, that's a really nice way of saying it because it's meant to be pictured much more gruesome than that. Um, it's meant to be pictured as you look at somebody who lives a life that's empty, and they die, and now their their body is just a carcass out on the ground, and, and the birds of the air, the kind of carrion birds, are just just eating it. It says that's 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 where this is carrying you. This is carrying you into a space that's so unsatisfying, so never happy, never never enough, never you know, content. It takes you to this place that leads to ultimate emptiness, that it has no satisfaction, has, has no fullness at all. It's a tragic reality. Unsatisfaction. By the way, it's again worth noting, that's the opposite of what God longs for you. You know, I think about how it gives it to us in in Psalm 17. It says, you know, when we awaken his likeness, we will be satisfied that there's a there's a joy that's before us as believers that, you know, even in our sin right now, we don't fully participate in, though we have tastes of it in Christ. We're a place where it's like you can find fullness of joy and uh, fullness of life. But where he's taking us is into a life that is eternally satisfying. I mean, I just want you to feel it right now that if you're a follower of Jesus, that's the road that you're, you're on. And yet pride goes all the way against it. That's true for the unbeliever, but it can be true in the life of a believer as well that wars against everything that God is seeking to work into us. This arrogance that makes us you know, pursue, and yet it's never enough. It's never enough uh, to pursue life outside of Christ. It is what Solomon would say in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is just empty. It is meaningless, meaningless. You pursue something with no value, with no ultimate satisfaction in the midst of it. And so he gives us this kind of poetic visual picture here of those who, this arrogant generation, they are, they are not satisfied. They're they are not happy. It's not going to go a good way that's going to be anything there. And so then he adds to it a group of things that he says are too wonderful. Now, wonderfully doesn't mean great. It has more of the idea of incomprehensible. So notice it with me there in verse 18. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four. I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. So he gives us these four pictures of things that he says, I I, I can't even comprehend what they are. I can't even understand fully how they work. Now, again, it's very poetic, and so it causes some Bible students to wonder, okay, so what are we talking about? Are we talking about something that um, is you know, almost untraceable, like you you could look there and just be, try to track an eagle in the air, or watch a serpent on a rock, or a ship in the sea, a, 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 and this man with a virgin, and say, I, don't even, I, I can't even track how that's happening. It might be that, or it might just be like, it's so confusing to watch, so confusing to watch, just to watch it the way an eagle can move at times in ways like, how do they even do that? How a serpent on a rock, I mean, I don't know if you ever watched that, and you're watching some snake, and they were like wiggling, and yet they're going sideways, and you're like, that's crazy. Like, how did that even do, I mean, how are you moving? I mean, how are you moving in that direction? I don't understand that. And a, a ship in the midst of the sea that moves in ways that at times are just kind of baffling to it, the idea. And then he just says, and so I also see this. Um, the man with a virgin. Now, sometimes people have taken this verse and tried to make it a very beautiful thing, and they'll talk about romance and and the mystery of that, and so again, I don't want to rob any of that if that's, you know, special to you, and like, hey, this is my verse, and I'm sorry, Um, but, you know, maybe it does mean that, you know, in the midst of it, but the idea, it it doesn't seem to be a good thing. The idea of this man with a virgin isn't the idea of of a budding romance or any of those things. In fact, we get that fifth couplet that gives us kind of what he just said in a different way. So notice it where he says in verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes with her mouth and says, I've done no wickedness. I, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything there. And so there is this picture of one who, you know, now is living this life that is walking in these ways that, you know, is this man with a virgin, and it pictures this idea of, you know, outside of marriage, uh, you know, kind of this adulterous affair kind of happening in the midst of it, and, and he's like, I don't even understand what you're doing. I don't understand how you get there, and then to watch this one fully live out how it began. You might remember back in that first section, he says, here's this group of people, you know, they are pure in their own eyes, but they are not washed." They're living an ungodly, un, you know, just righteous lifestyle, and yet they're arrogant in no, it. They don't, they don't even feel bad about it. It's the kind of person that someone's sinning, and they're like, I ain't done anything wrong. Like, you know, I, you know why, why, why are you telling me you know, that my lifestyle is wrong? It's just fine the way I'm living it. You know, I, I'm better than other people I know. And the sad reality is, is this incredible, ugly mark of arrogance. Now, we pause there and just say, I mean, this is, this is where it needs us to land for a moment because sometimes that's not what we think about. When I say arrogance, some of us are picturing, you know, somebody entirely snooty and, you know, just, I mean, you have this kind of Ebenezer Scrooge, I don't know what it looks like for you, but in this arrogance, it's ultimate arrogance that says, no, God, you, you can't tell me what to do. I get to call my own shots. My life is my own. And, and God says, that is arrogance as a generation that would say i you know i can do whatever i want and yet seem to live to get away with it it's a tragic picture of uh, of a world that is this prideful generation going the wrong way and once more just causing us to look at it and say that's true that's true you know, to see you know this place that would be marked with adultery, and, and and yet you know without any guilt, and in some ways you could go further with that into the picture that God would often give that He would see that as mankind doing life without Him, that ultimately it would flow into that, but that's further we won't have time to go into that, so I'll leave that for anybody who wants to pursue it, but it's enough for us just to say okay, so we're watching this prideful generation; they are not satisfied. And boy, you know, just to watch them. I mean, it's incomprehensible to watch how, how foolish that is and, and how ugly that is to move. So then he adds the next uh, section of four, which are things that he says are unbearable. It says, for three things, the earth is perturbed. Yes, for it cannot bear up. For a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. So he looks and says, you know, as we're watching this prideful generation go the wrong way, now we get to see, you know, it's just wrong. I mean, it takes us into places that it, it totally distorts everything that ought to be and does it wrong. And so he gives us these four pictures, you know, this slave who is reigning, and it's not a complimentary thing. I mean, there's, you know, someone say, oh, isn't that a good thing? It's like, no, this is the idea of someone who is um, base and, you know, foolish, and now they get power, and, and it becomes a destructive thing. You get this fool who is filled, and the idea is here's this guy living foolishly, and yet in a broken world, sometimes they're very successful. Sometimes they make millions of dollars, and you're like, that is just feeding your folly. That, what, what a terrible thing to see somebody who rejects God and yet seems to be successful when we know you're not. Uh, it is this hateful woman who gets married and this idea of somebody who's contentious and angry and, and is only going to poison everything she touches. And then to look at that and say, that's going to be a family that's destroyed. That's going to be a family that's destroyed. There's this maid who is this, you know, she ends up taking over and succeeding uh, the, 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 the mistress, succeeding uh, the woman in the midst of this. And it's just meant to be this picture of, that is just wrong. I, I don't think I'm able to, in, in, in quick moments, to tell you. But if you could see it, you would see every one of these and say, that should not be. I think about it. The ESV uh, study Bible simply said it this way. Says the four persons described here are insufferable because they have been granted things they have no capacity to enjoy and handle or handle wisely. A modern example would be a person who is promoted above his level of competence. That's what you're supposed to feel. Like. Yeah, I don't know if that maybe will land for somebody. You'll be like, okay, now I know what that looks like. Uh, maybe you had somebody and you know they just all of a sudden got promoted and you're like, you should never have been promoted. Like, you are not competent enough to handle that. Like, you're making, that's kind of the feel. Uh, It is this place that you would look and say, hey, this, these things, it's, it's as if you get the whole world wrong. You know, when you, when you have people that are reordering their own world and they're, they have no guilt and they, they don't feel bad about anything they're doing. It's as if they create a world that's just, you would look at it and just say, this is wrong. Like you just, you're messing up everything. You you know, it, this is not gonna go well. This is not gonna work out well for you. And it's as if the world itself cannot put up with it too much longer. He says, it's as if the world itself is unable to bear uh, just the brokenness that these things are. And honestly, there is space there. There is a space there even of thinking of our world now, just looking at the the arrogance and the pride and how much it is true to, to be able to look on this and say that the earth is perturbed <laughs> like the earth itself is like man this is just so wrong in the midst of it so we're watching it there is this very poetic feel that perhaps is giving us this progressive picture of these that are just very arrogant and they're unsatisfied and it's just uncomprehensible how they're moving forward they're unbearable in the weight of it and yet we're just looking at the mess that that is so it's here where it shifts. It's here that that Agur just begins to invite us down a different road. That if you can see this, if you can see, you know how broken this is. If you can feel like, okay, that is a world gone wrong, and maybe even just to say, okay, I, I think I've lived some of that. Um, maybe you, in your own honesty, would say that was me. I mean, I did my own thing, and it was I was totally unsatisfied. And it didn't even make sense. Why did I do the things I did? I don't even know. But man, it was just wrong. And God begins to rescue and he begins to draw us to a right way of living. And so in the next uh, section of four statements, he gives us a picture of things that are little, but they're wise. So notice with me there in verse 24. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is is in king's palaces. So we're going to look at four things that are small, but they're wise. And if you can kind of feel this for a moment, pause and just think about how this is the opposite of the prideful generation. The prideful generation is lofty. They think much of themselves. They think, and so he says, they have lofty eyes. They look at everything, but now we're going to look at those who are not arrogant, to those who are little, those who in, in the opposite realm say, I recognize I'm not you know, the center of the world. I am not all wise. I'm not smart <laughs> that knows everything. I, in fact, I recognize my smallness, which is where God invites us to. God invites us to come to an end of ourselves and recognize our poverty of spirit and recognize our brokenness and, and our great need. And so he just gives us four pictures. He says, okay, when you look at those who are small but wise, there's, there's pictures of how to do this well. He says, the ants, you look at them, you know, he says, there are people not strong and yet they prepare their food in the summer. I mean, here you look at ants and you think, okay, there's this place of diligent preparation, you could just watch it, right? I mean, some of you can even picture it now. Some of you had, you know, like one of those ant colonies kind of thing. And you just watch them. Like, man, it's just crazy. Like, here are these little bitty things. But they are so busy. Like, you know, they are always, you know, you know, you know moving and, and taking care. And there's something to look at that of, of just faithfulness, of, of those who would just be faithfully prepared for everything that's before them. Then my favorite among them is the rock badgers. Verse 26 says, the rock bedgers are a feeble folk. I don't know I it's like that. You know, I'm a feeble folk. Uh, the rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes among cracks. It says they recognize that they're weak. They recognize their, their own vulnerability, so they make their home in the rocks. And I find myself thinking of David, who had used this kind of imagery over and over, where he says, you know, the Lord is my rock and my redeemer, like I, I find, you know, I run to him and, and, and he is my safety. He is my rock. And, and there's this space of, of coming to an end of ourselves and saying, I know what I am. I need him. <laughs> it's like, I know I'm a feeble folk. You know, I, I'm, I'm not enough to handle life and I need to be in the rock. I, I need to make my home uh, in, in the one who is the rock that would be the life of everything that there is around me. It's a good space to go there. Then we look at the locusts, and he tells us, you know, the locusts have no king, yet they advance in ranks. And again, it's almost just hard for us to imagine. Maybe we've had it some here in America, but, you know, in the Middle East, locust plagues are crazy. Uh, You think about even reading in Exodus, the the locusts that God sends, and how you'd have these locusts that seem to march in waves, no commander ordering them, nobody there, but they move as a cloud at times, consuming everything in front of them and everything around them. And there's something in there that he's causing us to say, here's a group of people that have learned to do life together, have learned to do life, uh, you know, as a team, if we can say it that way, ultimately the way God has us to be, which is so opposite the arrogant generation. The arrogant generation, he, you know, he kind of gave it to us at the very beginning. You know, here are these ones who, instead of being a blessing to those around them, they're devouring everybody around them. They, they consume, instead of being those that are kind of invited into community. And we think about it, and, and saying it just again very, very simply, sin separates us. Sin separates us from God and separates us from people. It, it makes us independent. It makes us try to do life on our own, and that's a sinful propensity. God is inviting us to do life with him. To say, God, I don't want to do anything without you. And that life with him connects us to God's people so that we would find ourselves saying, I don't want to tackle life alone. I don't want to tackle those things in front of us with just thinking, I don't need anybody. I'll just do it myself. No, I want to say, I, I, I need people like I need the body of Christ, I need other people, I need them a part of my life, I want to move uh, not as an individual handling life on my own, I want to be a part of something that's not constrained to do so, it isn't like this thing, is like, you know, I've been, you know, chain ganged kind of thing into a group of people, but like a locust that chooses, says, hey, I, I want to do life, I want to move without you know, this authority forcing me, but life together, and it's a beautiful picture of what God has for us. I hope it is something that's true of you, because see, the danger is that you could still be here tonight and actually still be trying to do life in that sinful propensity, that place of saying, I'm an island, just me. <laughs> I can handle it all by myself. I actually don't need anybody. I'm here, but if I could just, I, I don't. Maybe somebody's even watching online, and that's exactly why you're watching online. It's like, I don't do people. You know, just me. I just, all I need is me. All I need is, and it's like, what a foolish space. It's so opposite of God's good design. He longs for us to move through life, you know, with people as a family in Christ and to learn even from the locusts in that regards. Then he gives us the picture of the spider. It says a spider or some translations might even say a gecko? It could go a couple of ways. Again, some of the Hebrew words are hard for us to understand. Either way, you kind of get the picture um it says it skillfully grasped with his hands and and it's in king's palaces so again obviously this is not a compliment to spiders not saying spiders everywhere they go are that way it's because some of you are like man i don't do spiders like this is just not my favorite one but i just want you to think about it for a moment it's as if you could watch walk into a king's palace the most powerful person on the planet and look up into the corner of the room and find there's a spider there it's like i chose to be here uh, this this is where I'm making my home. And, and he pictures this spider. He says, by the skillfulness of their hands. It's like they are like, this is, this is where I'm going to cling to. And obviously, that's what he's telling us. He's ca- telling us, hey, you know, you're small. Like, you're a small, but choose where you're going to make your home. And, and, and the king's presence is, is where you want to be. Just grab onto it with all that you are. It's like, I'm just going to hold, like a little spider. I'm just going to hold onto the wall, and I, I'm just going to be there. Like, I just want to be there with him. I want to be in the king's palace, our king, the king of kings. And, and so it's this picture of humility that drives us in an entirely different way, uh, a way of doing life that is right, that draws us to, to God, that draws us to our strength in him, that draws us to, to be with people, that draws us to be faithful and, and, and to be a blessing in the midst of all of that. And there are just incredibly rich pictures there. Again, I give it to you just briefly, and again, you could literally spend, um, in fact, I've, I've heard this section uh, done as a series of messages, and so, you know, someone's spending over a month, you know, just each one, and there's so much fun depth there. I give it to you just briefly and say, if you want to go deeper, go deeper, but it's enough for us this evening just to look at it and say, that's a very different picture. That's a very different picture from what we just saw, you know, from this prideful generation, who is doing it all wrong, rejecting God, rejecting authority, being not a blessing, and they're unsatisfied, incomprehensible, unbearable, and yet now there are these ones who, in their smallness, have found help and hope in life. Well, that takes us to the last of the section of four things, that he lets us know that there are majestic things. It says there in verse 29, it says, There are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four that are stately and walk. A lion, which is mighty among beasts, and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. So now we get to see things that are majestic. Uh, the idea is moving in power. Um, again, I like the way he specifically spoke of the lion, that he says, you know, it doesn't turn away from anything. I mean, there's just a, a power, a might, a strength that's in the midst of this. So we can think about a lion that way, and there's that picture of, you know, kind of lion, the king of beasts, you know, this animal that just isn't afraid and moving in power. Uh, quickly talking about the others, uh, a, a greyhound, well, let's just be quick, that, that's a little bit unsure. The Hebrew word here is got, you know, Bible students wrestling over it. Some would say it's a greyhound, some would say it's a rooster, some would say it's a warhorse. Um... At the end of the day, it's hard to even get to the exact meaning of this Hebrew word. And so it's almost just easier for me to say whatever it is, it's falling into the picture. It's this picture of power and authority. So you get this idea of a male goat which again, in a very different culture. For anybody who can get there very quickly in your brain, this is, you know, when Daniel speaks of, sees a vision of this male goat, it's ultimately a picture of Alexander the Great. It's that image, it's the power and moving in in authority and moving in speed. It has a a really dynamic picture to it that speaks of that in many ways, but then you get to see a king with his troops. And so I think about all of these things and ultimately in, in this context, I'll tell you, I think ultimately these are pictures of uh, of true authority and and true power and ultimately a a picture of of our God. I think about the lion and a picture of Christ who is uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah and this picture of him returning. In fact, it just felt, so I was thinking about it today, here we are on Yom Kippur, you know, this day that we're thinking of that day. We're thinking of the day that Jesus is going to bust back into the scene and, and he's going to come exactly this way. He's going to come moving in power. In fact, I thought I would just put a couple of the verses on screen. So actually, before we get to the days of at the end of the tribulation, I put the one in Revelation where it just simply says, you know, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seals. And so there is this picture that Jesus is that picture of that lion, uh, of this one who is authoritative and powerful and majestic and, and ruling and, and righteous and all of that. Then fast-forwarding to what today foreshadows in the, in the Jewish calendar, that picture of Jesus coming back. Some of you are reading it today as you're reading uh, at our daily reading. And you read where it says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And it's as if you just see it for a moment. Heaven's open and Jesus is coming. He's not coming back you know, to, to, to die this time. He's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's coming back in power. It's this war horse. It's this righteousness. He's coming to make war, to deal with the world, to right the wrongs that are in the midst of the world. He sees all the armies in heaven, clothed in fight linen, white and clean, falling among white horses. Again, I just want you to kind of think about that in the image that we're seeing here in Proverbs 30, where it talks about this king who's coming, moving with his troops. And this one who's like, he's coming. He's coming back with the armies, coming back with the the armies of heaven, clothed in clean white horses just following them. He says, you know, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the, the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this day is coming. I mean, this is a day that we live in light of, and yet it's a day that is meant to, in many ways, define the way that we look at our rebellious world. See, if I'm right, and what we've been reading in Proverbs 30 is this foreshadowing of it, it's as if we're looking at the end of this prideful generation. Then we're looking at this end where there's this arrogant generation who has said, you know, I reject authority. I can do whatever I want. I don't care. I'll do whatever, you know, unsatisfied, unbearable, you know, going the wrong way. And yet there's a day coming. There's a day coming when majesty will will reign on the earth, when Christ will come, when the king will come, when the lion will, will roar. And that moment, all that is this arrogance will be crushed. And everything that people have, have built in their own prideful ways and their own prideful, you know, kind of spaces comes just, you know, careening to a halt. And that's a tragedy. I mean, it's a tragedy. It's righteous. It's, it's powerful to think about it. But to look on this and say, okay, that's true. There's this majesty. There's this glorious, you know, God who is righteously coming and how that should change everything. That we would be able to look on this and say, okay, so we're watching this. We're watching, you know, the the folly of pride, this folly of a prideful generation that is unsatisfied, uncomprehensible, unbearable, and say, okay, we, you know, that's how we'd like to be little because we know there's majesty, there's a God who is reigning, sovereign, good, coming. And and you want to be on the right side of that. You want to be in in the space that is there. So I would put to you, Al Gore is, is arguing this to us. He is pressing us and kind of telling us, hey, where are you in the midst of this? Again, in in large measure or small, and so now he gives it to us as counsel. Now he, he wants to take all of these pictures that have just been laid out to us, and he gives it to us this way in verse 32. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself or have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and the wringing of the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. It says if you're there, if what we've talked about tonight looks too close to home, if there's pieces of it, you're thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting. That looks maybe more like me than I would like to think. Maybe I am that person who um, is doing life on my own you know, harmful to others. Maybe I, you know, I I ignore authority. Maybe I reject some of God's ways. Maybe, you know, the the places that I'm, you know, moving in the midst of this are altogether unhealthy. Then this just becomes this place where he says, if this is you, if you have been so foolish, if you have done the dumb thing of thinking yourself better than you are, Puffing yourself up and exalting yourself, if you have thus done the wrong thing and you're going the wrong way and you have devised evil, he says, then you ought to put your hand on your mouth. And it is this powerful picture. It's an interesting thing. There are a number of nuggets throughout Proverbs 30 that remind me of the book of Job. Uh, that, you know, from the very beginning, when he kind of pictures God's sovereignty, some of you here last week, there are just some really interesting terms that kind of flow into the very weight uh, of God revealing himself to Job, and interesting enough, so does this. So when Job has it, you know, Job goes through all that he goes through, all of his sorrows, and, and all of his, his struggles, and then he finally gets the encounter with God, and God reveals himself, God reveals himself as the sovereign, almighty, you know, God who is at work in the world. And he calls Job just to see his greatness and his faithfulness. And Job responds. He responds to that and he says it in Job 40. Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. He says, God, I spoke and I shouldn't have spoken. I said things I shouldn't have said, so now I'm laying my hand on my mouth. Now I'm, you know, kind of in in, in humility and sorrow and brokenness. My response is to lay my hand over my mouth and, and just like, I should never, I'm so sorry. I'm it's a picture of repentance. It's a picture of, uh, of humbling and this picture of sorrow. And that's exactly what Agur uses. He uses the same thing. He says, if that's you, if you have been so foolish and exalting yourself, if you've devised evil, then you should put your hand on your mouth. You should humble yourself. You should be that one that would come and, and say, okay, God, I see it. I, I mean, I see, I see what this is. I, I, I see where this is going. I, I see how that, that, that flows out and, and to just be moved in this other direction. So I think about everything I'm trying to say, and I, and I want to just come and say it one more time. So in one sense, yes, we are talking about a broken world a prideful generation, a generation that is going to come crashingly to a halt on the day that Jesus comes back. And and all of their folly is going to be revealed. And that is coming. That is a a certain thing. If you could see it, if you could look out at a world that rejects God and rejects his ways, you would be able to say, you're not happy. You're not satisfied. (laughs) You don't even understand the life you're incomprehensible, but it's unbearable. This is not going to work. It's not going to last. And you would recognize the end of all of that and just recognize what a a terrible space that is. And in many ways, crying out even today for that repentance, that brokenness. And if that's you, if you're here this evening and you're outside of Christ and you don't know him, in many ways, he has just pictured your life. Because one way or another, it is you. If you have rejected God and rejected his ways, if you're living in sin, doing your own thing, cutting yourself off from him and people, you are living a road that is, is heading towards destruction. You are living a road that is, is moving in that way, and it would be a great day for you to come and say, okay, you know, why there's still space? I want to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. I want, I want to come in repentance. And I tell you, this is God forgives that. God, God will, will meet you in mercy. He will meet you and draw you to him. And if that's you today as someone who's outside of Christ, then today we plead with you, give your life to him. But the reality is for many of you, you're believers. And so, there, but there's a danger that we'd read this and think, well, glad, that's just true of the world. I'm so glad that isn't a picture of me. But the sad reality is that we still struggle with some of this. Our flesh is still there. And sometimes the lies of the world still permeate our lives. But it's going the wrong way. It's going the wrong way. And so if in just pictures, it's as if if a girl was just painting you pictures tonight and saying, I want to show you what it looks like. I want to show you what your road looks like. If this is you, you are unsatisfied, incomprehensible, you are unbearable. I mean, it's wrong. It's going the wrong way. And if that is a picture of how you're doing life tonight, then he's inviting a switch, Switch it around. You know, come to this place where you're going to be little in your own eyes, and you're going to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And you're going to come into that place and say, God, I, I, I don't want to be a prideful generation. I don't want to be those that are come face to face at your majestic return and have you fighting against what I have built, fighting against the life that I have. It's an invitation to humility. It's an invitation to have the kind of heart that Agur has. So I'm inviting you to that this evening. I'm inviting this to work good in your life because our God is a gracious God. Our God is a forgiving God. That doesn't mean He's going to forgive you if you don't repent. Yet you need to lay your hand on your mouth. You need to be the kind of one and say, God, I I I I was arrogant. I said things I should not have said. I spoke it that way. I was that person. Rescue me. Make me that one that would come and know my smallness and find your great strength. So let's do this. You can close your Bibles notebooks, whatever it is you have open. I'm going to lead in prayer. And again, maybe it's a moment for surrender. If you're giving your life to Christ, it's a great moment to do that. But if there's just a moment that right now it's a place for you to humble your heart, for you to, in that sense, follow Agur's advice and lay your hand on your mouth and say, God, I've been doing it wrong. I've been been heading the wrong direction in a number of spaces. And I, I recognize that the unsatisfying destructive emptiness that that brings may it just work good in us just to cause us to see it and go that is not i I want to be a different person i want to be that one that's finding his help and his mercy so let's pray for that right now god i do come before you the god who is majestic the lion of the tribe of judah the one who's coming to rule and reign and right this broken world today on Yom Kippur. With great joy, I look towards that. With great joy, expectation in some ways of just thinking through this broken world coming to an end. And yet the sad reality is is the judgment that flows with that. So I pray right now for any that are hearing my voice that are not ready for your return. They're not ready to face your judgment. They're not ready to stand and find their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. God, thank you that you're still forgiving. Thank you that you're still rescuing. I pray that you would draw these right now in that space to an end of themselves and a turning to Christ, finding life in you that can be found nowhere else, life that is full now, satisfying in eternity, God, I pray that for those that don't know you. God, then I think about those of us who do. I could wish it would be true that such arrogance is no longer present in our lives. That we don't struggle with pride, and yet I know that's not true. We can be such a very prideful people. Pressing against you, rebelling against you, striving against your ways. Doing life on our own, being harmful, not a blessing to others. God, I pray that you'd bring us to a space that would be little in our own eyes, and that we'd humble ourselves before you, that we'd become like the ant that is just faithful day by day and the things that you're putting in front of us like the rock badger that knows how vulnerable it is and hides in the rock. You're our rock. The like a locust doesn't have to be forced to be a part of the body of Christ and, and, and functioning with others but joyfully participates. God, that you would cause us like a spider to Cling into the most places where we don't deserve it. We know that we just want to be with you to choose your presence above all things. So guys, we look on that. I just want to lay my hand on my mouth as it were and say, Lord, forgive me for those spaces where that's not the life I'm living, where pride and arrogance and selfishness promote my own place and my own self against you. Lord, I, with Job, want to humble myself before you and say, Lord, I do not want to be one that speaks such things. I want to go the other way. I want to acknowledge you as a faithful God and a good God. I think of your promise. You said, if we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, you would lift us up. So into this space this evening, I just long that you'd bring us. Humbling ourselves under your mighty hand. Would you draw us into this, Lord? We're asking for help, your blessing in your work in this evening, in this moment. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.